Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy. We're excited to have you back for another week of all the trash candy. Who, who so do you... much trash candy. Who do you have for us this week, Alicia? We can't write trash candy better than this. We got two creative souls this week in our If I Could Write episode. We do. This week, bringing you Danielle Steele, our newest inductee into the Trashy Divorces Hall of Fame with a few I Can Fix Him marriages. Seems that way. 200 books. It's incredible. Prolific. Fantastic ride of a story. And this week, Stacey, you're bringing us... Dun, dun. Dick Wolf. Dun, dun. Creator of Law and Order. And various other things. And uh, creator of three divorces, plus a long-running legal dispute with his second ex-wife. It was a hell of a story. Before we start there, let's pull out our magic mirror all decorated for the holidays. Yeah, give some shout-outs. Thank you for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Kelsey F., Dina L., Elizabeth O., Amy D., Erica A., Kareen S., and Heather M. Y'all rock. Got a few shout-outs to give this week before we start, too. Pauline M., happy, happy birthday from TDHQ2, as well as a huge shout out to all of our trash pandas who have subscribed already to Love Letters 2. Your daily episodes officially begin this Monday. Daily Drops of Love coming for you. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. I know. It's so exciting. All right. What should we do now, Alicia? These episodes aren't going to write themselves. (laughs) I guess we'd better go, go, go. Alicia, you are taking us on a fantastic trip this week, huh? I really am. I have a I have a trashy ride this week for my story. Because, come on, is it even vacation without a Danielle Steele novel? Look at any vacation home anywhere, <laughs> yep. and I bet you could find one or 15. Mm-hmm. Yep. Danielle Steele, maybe the most prolific writer of our time. She writes on average seven books a year. That's hard to, like herself, she doesn't have a team. She has, she has a researcher, she has an editor, so there is a team, but she, she's the writer. It's been a few years since I've read a, Daniel, is there a lot of research? Yeah. <laughs> Who's did these? Okay. There, there really is. Okay. I mean, she's, her dedication to the craft and the way she does it is impressive. Mm-hmm. Daniel Steele novels do involve and focus on the human condition There's a little romance. There's some sweeping family sagas and personal transformations. And there may be a little bit of Danielle Steele in each of her releases. She's Mm. a fascinating creature. As of right now today, Mm -hmm. Danielle Steele has written 190 books. That is... 141 of those being novels. That, That is absolutely impressive. She writes nonfiction and poetry, too. She also has nine kids. So busy, busy lady. Good Lord. Does she sleep? No, oh. she doesn't. I, I hold, hold on okay. to that moment. Uh, the queen of the page has also had her fair share of trashy divorces. Oh. 
trashy love, trashy divorces. I think she is a, I can fix him sort of gal. So <laughs> you would think her own books would make clear that <laughs> you write what you know. We are inducting Danielle Steele into the Trashy Divorces Hall of Fame today. Congratulations. This lady is always going to put it on the line for love, as this story will bear out, I trust. However, I would like to just start with some fun facts about Danielle Steele. There's an incredible 2019 article by Samantha Leach in Glamour, where I learned a lot of these fun facts. I just want to get some stuff out of the way before we get to the love and divorces part. As usual, all sources are on trashydivorces.com, but this glamour piece alone, whoa, 2019, Danielle Steele is a sensation because there is productive and then there's Danielle Steele level productive. This is just next level. Okay, fun facts. There is a sign in Danielle Steele's office that reads, there are no miracles, there is only discipline. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 179 books translated into 43 languages. 22 of those have been adapted for television. Danielle Steele holds a Guinness Book of World Records for having a book on the New York Times bestseller list for the most consecutive weeks at 381 weeks. She mostly writes in her home office, which is in Paris, but sometimes she'll write in San Francisco, in her San Francisco Beaux-Arts Mansion, owned originally within the Spreckles family. I'm going to follow up on the whole Spreckles thing in Dumpster Dive this week. She also writes on a 1946 Olympia Standard typewriter that she has named Ollie. Workhorse. She buys these same vintage typewriters because she needs to replace parts for Ollie. Uh, Because Ollie is almost, like, 80, 75 years old. She begins writing at 8.30 every morning. In her cashmere nightgown. She has nine kids. She hasn't had coffee in 25 years. I don't know what to say about that. She writes for 20 to 22 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I Seven books a year. Don't know. She eats toast and little miniature bars of bittersweet chocolate to exist. Are her children feral? No, her children are quite delightful. Okay. She has a personalized desk. Made out of three of her books. Literally, it's a handmade desk with three books stacked up. Star, Heartbeat, and Daddy. These were some of her big successes. There's a perfume by Elizabeth Arden named after her. Also, Danielle Steele has 6,000 pairs of Louis Vuittons. <laughs> she vacations for a week every year in France, which is the only time she reads for fun. She will not, she can't read any other fiction. Otherwise, she's like, it bleeds into my work. Mm, Yeah. She's writing seven books at a time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't, but I trust. I get it. This, it, Mm -hmm. Daniel, I feel a very, an inner avatar creative penchant with Danielle Steele. Yeah. She's fascinating. I'm a one topic per, like, I I can't be working on multiple things at a time. It's, it's very hard for me. So yes, I know you are much more, this is much more your style. The story is my speed. I just love her and questionable relationship choices oh. because she's a fascinating lady, but truly we're here for the trashy divorces and her love life sounds like one of her novels, a whole sweep of them. Mm-hmm. Actually, let's get into it. Danielle Ferdinand. 
Shulene Steele is a Leo girl. She was born August 14, 1947 in New York City. She's an only child. Her German father is a descendant of the Lowenbrau beer family. Danielle's mother is the daughter of a Portuguese diplomat. Hmm. Danielle is raised mostly in Paris. French is her first language. I had no idea. Uh huh. I just assumed she was an American author. No, she speaks French, Italian, Spanish, English, and I think another language too. But her parents are very much international and affluent. So the lifestyle and access that her parents have allowed Danielle as an only child this very unusual insight into adults. Because Danielle's at the dinner table when affluent people, like, she's just watching, soaking up like a sponge. Maybe this is why Danielle wants to be a nun. That's her first career ambition is to wow. be a nun. Yeah. She'd be the hardest working nun the in the world. working nun in the convent. I only need two hours of sleep a <laughs> night. I, I love her. I have so much time for God. At the Sisters of Perpetual... Typing. <laughs> Typing. <laughs> All right. Sadly, by the time Danielle is like eight, mom and dad have run the course of their mm. relationship and they divorce. Danielle is mostly going to be assigned to her father. She's not going to see her mother much at all. Hmm. I'm unsure of actually how much Danielle sees dad because both Danielle's relatives and dad's household help have been apparently tremendous parts of her childhood and upbringing and rearing. By the age of 15, Danielle has graduated from the Lycée Français in Manhattan. Yikes. No, it's like the French school. It is a big deal. No, I know. I, I say yikes because at 15. 15. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1963, she'll enroll in Parsons School of Design. Her goal is to be a fashion designer. Okay. She won't finish at Parsons. None to fashion designer? Mm-hmm. Like, wow. She won't finish at Parsons because she gets sick. But she's a New York debutante. As she's recovering from illness, she is going to get married for the first time. Oh. To a wealthy French banker. Mm. 25 years her senior. It's a choice. She's 18 mm-hmm. in 1965 when Danielle marries Claude Eric Lazard. She'll attend some classes at New York University and becomes pregnant with kiddo number one. But she likes writing. Like she really does. Mm-hmm. She started writing early on and likes writing little little stories and poems. This is in her spare time, what there is of it, because, you know, wife, mother, also. Danielle is the vice president of a PR agency in New York, too, called Supergirls Limited. I love that name, Supergirls Limited. That's fantastic, yeah. It is here at Supergirls Limited that the editor of the Ladies Home Journal will tell Danielle, like, you're a really good writer. You should do more of that. She's doing some freelance articles kind Mm -hmm. of on the side. He's like, you really should write a book. (laughs) Oh, will she ever. (laughs) So Supergirls Limited does close in 1971. And then Danielle's going to start freelancing. She'll do some copywriting, eventually moving to San Francisco, where writing novels and poetry will become her focus. Marriage number one is on the rocks. Hmm. Danielle and Eric Claude will not complete their divorce until 1974. But from the first work that she publishes in 1972, there are large indicators that the marriage is not maybe going so great. Hmm. little autobiographical. Uh, she does finish this manuscript at 19. It sells in one week to Simon & Schuster. 
for $3,500. Wow. Her net worth now is about $385 million. Okay. So comparatively. Oh, you mean today, not... Today, yeah. Okay. No, she sold her book for $3,500. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called... Well, it, 22 television adaptations on top of your... Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Right. Like, mm-hmm. Okay. This book is called Going Home. It's her first published novel. The heroine of this tale is a divorced single mother. Here's the blurb from Amazon. For Jillian and Chris, their happiness seemed complete. Handsome, dynamic, with a wild past behind him and a golden future ahead. Chris was everything Jillian wanted and more. Until a moment's infidelity broke the bond they shared and sent Jillian running to the city of her birth and into the arms of another man. She thought she said goodbye to love, but her heart told her that she should never despair, for forever is never over. Okay. This one sells for 3500 bucks, which is great, but the next yeah. four books she writes will not sell. Okay. She almost gives up on it, but she doesn't because there are other things that are happening too, because we have more husbands. Mm-hmm. While still married to Eric Claude, Danielle Steele is going to take a little trip to the Vacaville prison. She's doing a freelance article and she needs to interview some inmates for research. It is here Mm. in the Vacaville prison that her eyes will lock with those of an inmate. Not the one she's interviewing, but the heart wants what the heart wants. Oh my God. And it is Danny Zugelder who is in the joint for bank robbery. That is who Danielle Steele's heart wants. Wow. Now, Danny's interviewed many years later. I mean, of all the red flags. I can fix him. No, wait. Have you, you, you don't know the story, I do you? I don't know the story. Holy cow. Okay, fantastic ride. Okay, so Danny Zugelder in the joint for bank robbery. Danielle sees him. It is love at first sight. He's interviewed many years later while still in prison. And he says it was love at first sight. Now, I'm going to give you Danny's point of view here. She was an upper crust socialite, and she was into rebelling. She was going through a separation with her husband, who was a banker. So the irony of banker to bank robber is not lost on Danny. Mm -hmm. He says, she pursued me. She will write. She will visit. They make out in the visiting area. She's there all weekend from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Whoosh! And this romance goes on throughout 1972 into 1973. And by June of 1973, Danielle Steele is going to ensure that her lover Danny, she's not divorced yet, but she wants her boyfriend out of prison. So she's going to get him paroled. She gets him a gig on the outside. She lets him move in with her. And Danny gets out and It doesn't go great. Danny is not adjusting to life on the outside very well. He will say her high society life just really didn't work for him. Yeah, different worlds, baby. Well, Danny says he has the power in prison, but on the outside, all the power is hers. It's her house. It's her money. Danny doesn't last long. Within a week, he has robbed a woman around the block from Danielle Steele's apartment. (sighs) Okay. He will rape another woman. Whoa. So it is no surprise that Danny is back in the joint by early 1974. Mm -hmm. Okay. This does not diminish Danielle's love for Danny. She's still coming to visit. I have questions. 
And, well, they get a great idea, these young lovers do, because when you're married, you can have conjugal visits. So it is a mighty fine day in the prison canteen in 1975, after the divorce from Claude Eric is complete, that Danielle and Danny will marry. How do you think her phone calls to her parents were sounding about this? (laughs) I do not have that information in my research. (laughs) Well, as you can imagine, it is difficult to carry on a relationship with a partner who is incarcerated, perhaps. If only they had thought of that earlier. Well, this time period will have Danielle still writing two of her novels that will launch her career in short order. One of those novels is called Now and Forever. It is about a woman who loves a man who is in prison, who has been wrongfully convicted Hmm. of rape. Okay. I bet that has not aged well. So I guess one benefit of having your husband in prison is there's a lot of available eye candy when you go visit if you're a heterosexual lady. Open pickings. And it is in prison, visiting her husband, Danny, that Danielle Steele will meet husband number three, William George Toth, Bill Toth. Has she never heard of a nightclub? <laughs> the divorce from Danny <laughs> is final in April 1978. And it is one day, the following day, after that divorce is complete, that Danielle will marry Bill Toth, a recovering drug addict, on parole. Danielle, at the time, is also eight months pregnant with his child. Wow. And they met met when he was in prison? Yeah. Uh She's got a type. It's looking good for a while. (laughs) Because Bill's staying clean. Mm -hmm. Well, that is good. Yeah. No, it's good. Like, this is, you know, it's, it's not a bad first few months. But then Danielle is going to experience extraordinary success, right? Her fourth novel is going to make her a star. And Daniel is a Leo girl. Hello, Leo season. She's been waiting her whole life to be a star and will start moving in San Francisco high society. And Bill, not really great with life on the outside. We come from different worlds, baby. There's a type he begins using again. Mm. He is caught. He goes back to prison for several years. Danielle and Bill divorce in March 1981. I feel like the state of California might want to just keep her out of prisons, like just deny her access. Next guy is next guy is the longest. We're about to come to husband number four. Okay. Because marriage four happens in the same year as divorce number three. Move fast, break things, out of jail. <laughs> no rest for the weary. Okay. Goodness. So... This is actually really rather tender. Okay. What was his criminal record like? He's not. Good. He's a shipping magnet. He's loaded with cash. I'm about to tell you the sweetest little love story you've ever heard. Here's Danielle Steele's love redemption. Danielle Steele does have a blog. She doesn't give interviews very often. We're going to talk about why in just a few minutes. There's a few really good ones that we've listed on the website. However, Danielle Steele does have a blog. She has a Danielle Steele page where she legit writes blogs. And upon the passing of husband number four, this ex-husband, John Trania, they have 17 years together. They have quite a wonderful 
marriage and kids and she has it all. And then her past comes back to wreck it all. I'm not even this. It's like the real headline. But she did... They they did settle down with each other for quite a long time. 17 wonderful mm-hmm. years. So upon John Trania's passing, Danielle will write about it in her blog. This is how I'm getting to the story of how they met, married, and had 17 wonderful years together. This is Danielle still. I met John at a Gone with the Wind costume party given by friends at their country home. He was married then, and his wife was wearing a beautiful gown, which had actually been a costume worn by Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara in the movie. Wow. John was wearing a Union officer's uniform and looked incredibly dashing. Late as usual, I ran across the lawn to the party, not looking where I was going, and crashed into the chest of a man in uniform. I looked up and there was John, dazzlingly handsome. I'm sure he never remembered me from that day, although I glimpsed him and his lovely wife at the party. In a long time after, I wished I could meet a man like him. It never dawned on me that I would be lucky enough to be in his life one day. Eventually, he and his wife became my friends and invited me to some dinner parties with my assorted, not very exciting boyfriends at the time. John and his wife looked like movie stars to me, and they led a golden, elegant life. They seemed like role models of people who had it all, and I enjoyed their company a great deal. I'd always admired the fact, too, that John never flirted with me, nor showed any interest in me. Not always the case with married men. John was married, with a capital M, and seemed to be such a great husband. A few years later, as I mushed along in my own life, he and his wife separated and divorced. And he called me and invited me out. She was marrying someone else. John was alone, and I was amazed that he'd invited me out. He was nearly 20 years older than I, and although he didn't look it, I thought he was much too glamorous for me. I had a kind of who-me feeling about it. He was asking, me out? Me? How could that be? I'd never felt so lucky in my life. (laughs) Danielle Steele, no dust on her. We fell in love with each other very quickly. Our first date was lunch on New Year's Day. It was a whirlwind romance. He proposed to me on Valentine's Day. Hmm. New Year's Valentine's. Which was pretty funny as we both had other dates for that night, which we decided to honor so as not to disappoint anyone. Wow. But we let our respective dates know that we had just gotten engaged. Oh, my God. (laughs) Let me tell you how this will end. (laughs) And we were married in June. John had two adorable, very young sons, Trevor and Todd, who were friends of my daughter's. And I knew well. And I had my daughter, Beatrix, and my son, Nick, was a baby whom John adopted once we were married. And everyone loved everyone. It was a love fest. And John was truly the handsomest man I have ever known and was until the day he died and a kind one. He made everyone feel special. And I felt like a fairy princess. Cinderella when I was with him. (laughs) One of the things I loved about him was that he wanted more children, and so did I. We had five more together. Samantha, Victoria, Vanessa, Max, and Zara. We filled our house with love, light, music, and laughter, and a lot of kids. And we shared 17 wonderful years. This is so nice, right? Mm -hmm. You can tell she's a writer. Because she's going to continue on about what happens. She can tell it better than I can. As happens sometimes in life, dreams fade, reality gets the best of us, things happen, 
people disappoint each other, or tragedies occur. My son Nick was desperately sick for our entire marriage, which was a challenge. My career was demanding. I'm more of a homebody. John loved going out and having a huge social life, which I didn't always have the energy for with nine kids at home, one of them very ill, and constant deadlines. We were at different points in our lives. He in the final stretch, the fun part. He retired early and had more time to play than I did. And I tend to be a more serious person and was happy at home with the kids or working. And after 17 years, with great sadness, we parted ways, but we remained very close. Even after our divorce, my house was always open to him. We spent wonderful times together with the kids. This is what's extraordinary. He spent every holiday with us, <laughs> came to dinner often. We took real pleasure in seeing each other with and without the kids. And our Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays were legendary among the people who knew us. Because in an effort not to pull the kids in different directions, not only did John spend the holidays with us, but so did his first wife. Hmm. With her new husband before he died wow. and her mother, who is like a grandmother to my children and a cherished member of our family. The time of this writing in 2011, uh, grandma was 93. Wow. And, yeah. And going strong, right? Like what an incredible family yeah, dynamic. Like actual blending. So there's a lot in between the lines there, though. So let me give you the... Her not writing about it and maybe kind of how it all went down. There's another really good. Daniel still gives very few interviews. This one is into 2006 to Karen Angel from the New York Times. Karen Angel writes, In real life, Steele has had a life so colorful that, well, it would make a good romance novel. Steele doesn't like discussing her early marriages and blames the sleazy revelations about them on a 1994 biography of her for destroying her marriage to Trania. Hmm. Hmm. Authors Lorenzo Bennett and Vicki L. Bain had obtained records of Trania's adoption of Steele's son, Nick, whose biological father was Bill Toth. Danielle will sue in order to keep those records sealed. Danielle Steele says, Nick never wanted the other children to know that he wasn't John's child. The records of adopted children are sealed in California. That seal is considered inviolable. The judge ruled that because I was famous, he didn't have the same rights as other kids. She goes on, we could have appealed, but the whole thing was so traumatic for my son that we decided to let it go. So they did print that he was adopted. We told the siblings before the book came out, it probably would have come out in the family eventually anyway. So, so bruising is this episode because Nick is her super fragile kid. After this, because this unauthorized biography comes out, it tells about all of her marriages that have happened previously in the adopted son and her kids don't know. Like, it's mm -hmm. terrible. Mm -hmm. She quits giving interviews. She said, I'm not, I'd never do them again. And she stayed below the radar for like 15 years. She does not want to put any of her kids in any kind of light where they can be hurt again. She says she's a mommyaholic. Sadly, after the divorce with John Trania, this is 1997, at the age of 19, her son Nick died by suicide. Hmm. So 
She'll call herself a super private person, practically a recluse, but she will go public with this experience. She'll write a book called His Bright Light, the story of Nectrania, telling the story of her son's life, his struggle with manic depression, and his death, which becomes a bestseller and remains the most personal of all of her books. Danielle says, I didn't want him to slip away in silence. I wanted people to know that he was an amazing kid and wanted what we learned to serve others. And this is where I just think I kind of bring it back around. She'll go on and say, I've had my share of tough stuff. When people look at me outside, they think she's so lucky, but no one is exempt from tragedy. Ain't that the truth. Hmm. Uh, Her son, Nick, was a lead singer of a band called Link 80. The proceeds of that book that she writes do fund a foundation named in his honor, which funds organizations who treat mental health accessibility. Danielle has raised a lot of money for this foundation through various acts. She has also lobbied in Washington for better mental health accessibility legislation. Good for her. Mm Mm-hmm. Danielle will get married for the fifth time. This time that same year, her son dies in 1997. This is a Silicon Valley money guy. His name is Tom Perkins. It lasts four years, but that one is not meant to be either. Mm -hmm. 2002, they divorce. Hmm. And that is the five up, five down. Trashy divorces tale of Danielle Steele, who writes about it all for all of us. I have a bunch of writing quotes here for any of my Trash Panda writers. I'll probably talk about them in Dumpster Dive a little bit this week because she really is fantastic. But I'm going to end here. Going back to that Glamour article, uh, when asked if she ever plans to stop writing, give it all up to shop in Paris, relax in the south of France, or even just take a nap, her answer is swift and serious. (sighs) When I was first starting out, I had the same agent as Agatha Christie. I was about 19 years old, and she was in her 90s. Wow. I met her once. Wow. And I remember she said, I want to die face first in my typewriter. (laughs) And I feel that way. I mean, I want to go on forever just writing. Hmm. And she is a young 74 now. I want to go, yeah. Still putting out seven books a year. Still putting out seven books a year. She's just, it is impressive. An impressive and remarkable story. Potentially some errors in picking along the way. You know. But it makes for everything is copy. Sure. (laughs) No, it sounds like she was very into red flags as a young woman. (laughs) So when it comes to trash cans, I'm going to give Danielle Steele 22 trash cans. For the number of adaptations Mm. of movies made from her books. But all 22 of those trash cans are found in Ollie. In the bottom of Ollie, her 1946 vintage typewriter. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. What a fascinating story, Danielle. For sure. Yeah, she really, like, let yourself sleep a little, Danielle. It's okay. She can't, apparently. She just can't. Hmm. Lively mind. Can you ma- yeah, can you imagine just, no. whoa, you think you have a hard time catching up with me? <sighs> yeah, lively mind. All right, friends. All right. We're going to be back with a... A contemporary of a contemporary, Danielle Steele, Yeah, actually. we're writing, writing lively minds all uh-huh, over the place. Yeah. Let's hear from our sponsors this week. We'll be back on the flip with Dick Wolf. Dun-dun. 
Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, Trash Panda Nation. Let's everyone just take a minute, give yourselves credit for getting to today... And now we cue Sir Elton John. I'm still standing. Would you like to say that you are standing better than I ever did about your personal finances? Our friends at the Oak Tree Group are ready and willing to help you. The mission of this all-female firm is to guide you through all phases of your financial journey using an intuitive and holistic approach. Best of all, Oak Tree Group is offering our Trashy Divorces listeners a free one-hour consultation with no obligation to talk about your financial concerns. Give the Oak Tree Group a call today at 770-319-1700 to set up your appointment. Again, that number is 770-319-1700. And you can always visit www.theoaktreegroup.net for more information. There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours, and you can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. And if you're not clicking, that's fine. It is free to change counselors. BetterHelp is available worldwide. They offer specialized expertise that may not be available locally where you live. It's more affordable than traditional counseling. Financial aid is available as well. It has just never been easier to find a licensed professional counselor. In fact, there are so many people using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com Trashy. Join more than 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit BetterHelp, that's BetterHelp.com slash Trashy. In the trashy divorces criminal system, you are representing this case. <laughs> yes. Uh, and in the television criminal justice system, um, the people are mostly represented by the guy we're going to talk about today. And that is, get ready to make the sound, Dick Wolf. Bum, bum. Dun, dun. We both make the sound different. It's very funny. Chung, chung. It's weird to see journalists try to write it. And dun, dun. That was one of the more, like weird little fun tidbits as I was reading articles about Dick Wolf. Dun dun. Because everyone <laughs> It's such an innate The sound effect thing. <laughs> was created by composer Mike Post, by the way. 
Interesting. It is one of the most recognizable it, it sounds. Is it that? Around. Alicia, from steamy novels to hard-boiled crime stories, we're going to jump around a little bit. My subject today is kind of a contemporary version of Aaron Spelling, who we've talked about in the past. He produces weekly dramas on multiple networks and personally programs hours of television that Americans watch, and uh, which is also seen around the world, of course. We are talking about writer and TV producer Dick Wolf. Dun dun. Dun dun. Whose <laughs> Law and Order franchise has been a TV staple for three decades now. That signature sound effect created by composer Mike Post is recognizable to pretty much every sentient organism who's been exposed to a functioning television in the 21st century, and the ripped-from-the-headlines crime style has spawned a genre of not only scripted television, but arguably has influenced documentary filmmaking, reality TV programming, you name it. I mean, it's this guy is mega-influential. Happily for us... And a shout out to Twitterer Hennessy Whiskey, not the brand, but likely a fan of the brand. Oh, good name. For cluing me in that Dick Wolf has also been married and divorced three times, with his second divorce spawning a more than 15-year legal battle. <gasps> what? That could possibly be summed up as the case of the quiet billion. Whoa. Whoa. That sounds juicy. <laughs> Let's talk about what we know about Dick Wolf, who will turn 75 on December 20th, so happy birthday. First, given how prominent he is as a cultural influence, he's kind of surprisingly behind the scenes. You'd think he would be more in the public eye, but it's like he he chooses his publicity moments in a kind of thoughtful way. So when Law & Order SVU became the longest-running scripted live-action primetime drama in American television history last year, there were some articles. He gets a big award, there may be a profile, but yeah, he's not he's not trying to get himself in front of cameras all the time. Richard A. Wolf, Dick Wolf, dun dun. Thanks. Uh, grew up in in New York City. He was the only child of an ad man and an NBC publicist. And his grandmother had written title cards for Paramount. Really, back in the silent film era, pre talkies. Interesting. Mm -hmm. He went into advertising himself after graduating from UPenn in 1969. He went to pretty elite Phillips Academy in Andover, the Frederick Gunn School. In Connecticut. So, so he, an affluent like, upbringing. Yes. Which makes sense. In 1970, he married for the first time to a woman named Susan Scranton, whose father had been the governor of Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And whose grandmother, Marion Marjorie Warren Scranton, had been a prominent women's suffrage activist before the 19th Amendment passed, and later was a vice chairman of the Republican National Committee in the 1930s. So a prominent family the marriage lasted 13 years. and Oh, that's nice. It ended before he had found his success in Hollywood. Ergo, it was not really in the media that he was divorcing. So I don't know how that shook out. I don't think they had kids. Couldn't really find out why it ended. But there may be a clue in the fact that he married his second wife, Christine, in 1983, the same year the divorce became final. Hmm. Whole new direction. Hmm. Uh-huh. Anyway, while he was madmanning it up for the national brands in the 70s, he was typing away at screenplays in his free hours, hoping to eventually become a writer of film. In 1977, he took the plunge, moved to L.A., and miracle of miracles, he got some stuff produced. Oh, wow. Definitely not a given. He told The Hollywood Reporter's Lacey Rose about what happened next in a 2015 profile. 
My agent called and said, do you want to do TV? I said, absolutely not. I was a, <laughs> I was a screenwriter. She said it was Hill Street, my favorite show. So I said, oh, that's different. I wrote a script. David Milch read it and wanted me to go on staff. This was the conversation I had with my agent on speakerphone. Hill Street wants you to go on staff. No, I don't want to go into an office. I've done that. Then she said, let me explain something to you. They'll pay you $6,000 a week. And then they'll pay you for your scripts on top of that. What? My wife at the time walked over, leaned down, and said he'll be there Monday. That's exactly right. So he worked on Hill Street Blues for a single season, I think 85-ish. Then he jumped over to Miami Vice, which was not considered a prestige move. Hill Street Blues was widely considered the best thing on television at the time. Miami Vice was the cotton candy of... That is some fine television writing right there. Crime shows. His thinking was that if he could make Miami Vice a good cop show and not just sockless eye candy, no one would ever question his ability to work in the crime genre. I mean, it's not a bad thought. How did it go? Let's say he took some some lessons. Don Johnson was a bit of a diva on set. Prima Donna. Okay. And so you'll notice that Dick Wolf does not cast big stars in his shows. Ensemble. There's no single point of failure. (laughs) Hmm. Anyway, jump ahead to about 1987. Miami Vice has been a big hit, and he starts shopping this idea that he has, Law & Order, to the networks. He starts at Fox, which ordered 13 episodes in the middle of his pitch. He didn't even have to finish describing it. Mm -hmm. And the next day, Fox calls and is like, yeah, no, we're not doing this. (laughs) Oops. Okay. There are other networks. It's fine. So he goes to CBS and CBS is really excited and they order a pilot. Great. They film the pilot. Everything's great. Dick sits down to wait for that congratulatory phone call, greenlighting the first season. And that phone call never comes. Oh. A year passes and he takes the filmed pilot over to NBC's honcho, Brandon Tartikoff, and plays the pilot for him. And Tartikoff is intrigued but says... How are you going to do that every week? Dick says, order six scripts and I will show you. Thus it was that on September 13th, 1990, Law & Order premiered on NBC, where it would stay for the entirety of its 20-season run, concluding on May 24th, 2010. Yeah, it's incredible. Law & Order is two shows in one. The first half is a police procedural the second half is a legal drama, and this was it was structured this way very purposefully. In 1990, syndication, which I think is where most shows were, that's where you make the long-term money, it was heavily focused on 30-minute sitcoms, not hour-long dramas. So the idea was that if need be, they could... Break it up into two. Yeah, Interesting. what we would say, they would repackage their content. I mean, it's it was a very forward way to look at making a television show. So yeah, they could break it up into 30-minute blocks and launch it into syndication. Quite famously, the show is set in New York City, which is sort of a character in the show in its own right. And the sense of place that has been fostered has been enhanced as the franchise has sprawled by featuring common fictionalized elements. There's Hudson University, which is like a Columbia-NYU mashup. This has some fun parody Twitter accounts. Uh, Official Hudson U is one that I follow. Probably the most dangerous school in America. You're not lying. (laughs) There's also a relatively limited pool of actors, at least compared to L.A. So frequently 
you'll see an actor as, you know, someone involved in a crime, either a victim or a, a perpetrator, and then they will later be a cop, you know, that kind of thing. No, a lot of people have gotten some chops oh, on Law & Order. We will talk about it. Yeah, within the industry, Law & Order has served as something like a jobs program for New York actors, and pretty much everyone who's come out of the New York scene has a credit as something in at least one episode. The franchise has produced more than a thousand hours of programming. Wow. I don't even think these numbers are current. Um, I think this these are old numbers. So anyway, the franchise has produced more than a thousand hours of programming with each episode requiring on average 20 to 30 roles to be filled. In that 2015 The Hollywood Reporter piece, Dick says that they have cast something like 35,000 speaking parts over the years meaning paydays for thousands of actors. That is incredible. Then continue on into syndication, yeah. Wow. Okay, so this is from a Los Angeles monthly profile from 2002 called Brotherhood of the Wolf by Diane K. Shaw. Since the show first aired on NBC in 1990, there have been 253 episodes, and by the end of this season, it's 12, you'll have 25 more. Not enough? The old ones recycle four times a day on A&E, Monday through Friday, plus twice every Tuesday on TNT. Still not enough? Law & Order's Special Victims Unit is in its third season, and if you miss it on Friday night, you can catch it nine days later on USA. Want more? Law & Order Criminal Intent, starring Vincent D'Onofrio as a sort of Sherlock Holmes slash Columbo, debuted last fall on Sunday at 9. A fourth show, Crime and Punishment, a drama-mentary depicting real-life court cases from the DA's point of view, is in production. What this means is that a human being can watch 27 hours of Law & Order a week, excluding those A&E weekend marathons. That is incredible. Whether anyone ever has is unclear, but it is known that every week, 80 million viewers see a Law & Order something. Wow. So I mentioned earlier that Dick is not particularly a publicity hound and tends to keep personal details about his life well out of public view. He describes his shows as workplace dramas, which they are, but his sense of the boundary between a professional workplace and an emotional home is also actually really evident in his shows. More from the Los Angeles Magazine piece, that Wolf protects his shows from soapiness does not please his actors. When Chris Noth left Law & Order after five years as Detective Mike Logan, the writers had him punch out a congressman in exile to Staten Island. I begged them, let him die in my arms, says Jerry Orbach, killing time between scenes in his Chelsea Piers dressing room. <laughs> Andy Sipowitz, the NYPD blue character, is estranged from his son. Then his son joins the force. They grow close. Then his son is killed in the line of duty. Then Sipowitz's wife is killed. He starts drinking again. His little boy nearly dies. And every year, Dennis Franz would win an Emmy. I can do that stuff, please. <laughs> Poor Jerry. <laughs> yeah, he played Lenny Briscoe. Classic TV oh, character. yeah. It's also the case that Dick has been criticized for making so-called copaganda. And I think it's safe to say that we have learned enough about how actual policing too often happens in America that there is something to that take. Okay, so he is a big deal for television. His show is a big deal for television. Then SVU premiered in 99, Criminal Intent in 01. And now, you know... It's a conglomerate. It's the hydra of television. Big business. Dun dun. But behind the scenes, you know, which he keeps out of public view... His 20-year-long second marriage to Christine had been unraveling for some time. His schedule 
has it is was what it's an intense schedule. He is frequently in New York City to be close to production, though the family he she and their three children at the time lived in Montecito, California. So That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. In her divorce filings, Christine would describe Dick as an absentee father who effectively left her alone to raise their children. She began to resent being second fiddle in his life, and in 0203, she hired a private investigator just to make sure he wasn't up to anything he shouldn't be up to, which I guess he wasn't because adultery was not apparently alleged in the filings. She did decide that their time together had come to an end, however, and the two opted for a mediated divorce in California that would include fulsome valuations of the marital assets in order to properly divide their property approximately equally Let's make as it clean and easy. Required by California law. Certainly. Yeah. This is a good plan. How did it go? No no messing around on like what what does equitable distribution mean? It's California has its own its own way of doing things. Some of this was very easy. The house in Montecito was worth 14 and a half million. There was an apartment in New York, there was a vacation home in Maine, and those two collectively accounted for another 15 million or so. A little $30 million situation. Where things got sticky and where the lawsuits would launch was putting a value on the business, Wolf Films, and all of those lucrative television properties. Now, this is the same wife who said, yes, he'll be there Monday. Mm -hmm. Okay, I I just wanted to to clarify. Adding further to the mess, the couple shared a business manager, Bob Philpott, and they ended up working with a mediator to work out this financial settlement for this very high-income divorce with a mediator who had financial ties to Bob. I don't know if Bob made that referral or it's kind of implied. Already sounds shady. Problematically, from a timing perspective, Dick had also taken a $40 million advance on the projected $50 million profit on Law & Order back in 2001, so a year or two before. So at the time that this divorce was being worked out, he was technically in debt to Universal because oh. the profits had not been realized yet. Just the bad timing here all around for Christine. But at the end of the process, she walked away with $17.5 million in cash, spousal support of $2 million a year for eight years, the main vacation home, and various and sundry other things. A, this a, is not a bad deal. Not a bad deal. What she did not get were contingent profits from his company, which she had wanted, but he stood firm on that. She would later say that the mediators pressured her to sign off on the agreement, and Dick even threatened to get in the way of her moving to New York to be closer to their son. And she says Dick threatened to refuse to attend their son's 20th birthday party unless she signed the agreement. So she signed. Mm. The next day. Oh, no. <sighs> maybe a couple days. I don't know. But Ooh. immediately after, we're going oh, no. to go with the next day. Newly single, independently wealthy, Christine rolls out of bed, pours herself a cup of coffee, I imagine, opens up the LA Times, where, lo and behold, she learned that Dick had been in negotiations with NBC for a $1.6 billion law and order deal, quote, the most lucrative deal in TV history. Holy cats. It said, and Dick had not said a word. $1.6 billion. Had not said a word about this to her. How many holes did Christine come out of in the roof of that home? <gasps> yeah. For the record, this was part of the NBC Universal merger that was ultimately completed in 2004. 
it sounds like it ended up being about a billion dollar deal for Wolf Films or Shouldn't that have been disclosed? Well, funny thing, I don't know specifically with California law, but in a lot of places, the day that you file for divorce is when like the clock stops on your marital assets. That is... Okay. So I don't think Dick was under any obligation to tell her... Dick normally isn't under an obligation (laughs) in our world. Christine, as I think anyone in that situation would... Picked up the phone and called her lawyer. 100%. Who oh, yeah. In turn, called Dick's lawyer, mm-hmm. expressing some concern about the possible conflict of interest with the mediator, who maybe through knowing the business manager did know that there could be a $1.6 billion windfall in the offing. Yikes. And chose not to convey that information to mm. Christine. Better still, Dick had not yet signed the agreement that he had allegedly been pressuring her to sign. But he took care of that the next day and then asked a judge to enforce it immediately. Oh, I bet he did. Christine argued that she had only signed, she had only agreed to sign because of this massive fraud that her ex-husband and his people had engaged in. The following year, a Santa Barbara judge essentially took Dick Wolf out of the equation, noting that she had been well represented by competent counsel. And again, he probably was not obligated, if they were already in divorce proceedings, he probably was not obligated to tell her. I mean, out of a billion dollar profit, don't you just write her a check for a hefty number of millions with a zero at the end and call it done? No, you spend 15 years in court. (laughs) I mean, what what it's going to cost you for 15 years in court is probably a 50 million check. Let me just write you and let's call the whole thing off, man. So when the Santa Barbara judge knocked this down, this led to appeals... She made federal claims, most of which did not pan out for her. Mm. She took aim at the business manager and the mediator, first claiming that they had misled her and then arguing that they had committed professional negligence. And in fact, like the conflict is real. She's not wrong on that. But there's also this issue when you do a mediated divorce in California, everything compiled for the mediation is privileged from future litigation. Oh. So I feel like she may have had stronger claims than the courts that weren't for that privilege. Anyway. This is some murky trash candy. Yeah, it's yeah. not great. She noted that Dick had gifted both men with $50,000 watches as a uh, thank you for their hard work in his divorce. And she alleged that the mediator had not charged a fee for his services, huh? perhaps with the dream of further employment. And her ex-husband's very lucrative business dealings, maybe. Well, Dick Wolf is going to read his screenplay. His money he manager. He wants to be a writer. They did not, in fact, work together later. So Christine's quest for legal validation of her claims continued through 2019. The divorce started in 03. Wow. Yeah. That is extraordinary. At which point an appeals court ruled that there was just no evidence that the mediator, and I'm quoting here, favored Dick. <laughs> And one of the key pieces of evidence for this is that apparently he and Dick Wolf had no further business dealings. Dick, meanwhile, had a whole other 12-year-long marriage and divorce before Christine got her final no from the courts. Uh -uh. Yeah, like in the background. uh, In 2006, he married his third wife, Noelle, and they would have two kids as well. They filed for legal separation in December of 2018 reportedly with a prenuptial agreement in place. 
He's apparently paying $100,000 a month in support, which sounds great until you factor that he reportedly makes around $15 million a month. Whoa, what? And it is hard for me to think in either of those numbers. I could live very comfortably on $100,000 a month. Yeah, you think? I could live very comfortably on $15 million a month. But I know like for rich people, $100,000 a month may not. I, is there a world where that's anyway? I don't know. That's incomprehensible to me. Friends, <laughs> that is the odyssey of Dick Wolf. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. Who's been paying actors for decades and for that, I applaud. But really does not love to profit share with his ex-wives. Sounds it like. Seems. So I'm going to give him 45 trash cans for the cumulative number of years that he has been married in his life. <laughs> Dick Wolf. Again, he'll be 75 this month. Happy birthday. Good on you. Happy birthday, man. Thanks for churning out shows that I've really enjoyed. He's got a, a trio of Chicago-based shows now. So he's doing the same like actor jobs program there now, too. It's, it's Hey, actually, when you find the formula. Which Work he, the formula. He has found the formula. Unlock the unlock mm -hmm. the science, man. Mm -hmm. Maybe not with wives, but <laughs> television programming you really got going on. Yeah. Well, that was a hell of a tale, Stacy. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Dun dun. I, I really like Law and Order. So. I do too. It's a good show. Mm -hmm. I think that's all we have for the week. That's probably going to do it for us. We're going to be back on Wednesday with a brand mm -hmm. new trashy breakups. It's a good one. I mean, it's a terrible one, so it's extra good. If you would like to hear more from us in the meantime, check out some pulled from the paywall. It's like ripped from the headlines stuff at bit.ly slash trash candy, or you can join us at Patreon at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. We are going to have some ripped from the headlines this week. That's all Dumpster Dive is on yeah, Tuesdays. That's true. And this week's Spiderwebs I'm in, in charge of, and it's the story I didn't do for this week definite ripped from the headlines nice don't forget love letters Two drops mm. for you tomorrow on monday i'm so excited about it you are excited about it thanks y'all for tuning in here there and everywhere write yourself a fantastic week shout out to the neighbor with the leaf blower thanks man <sighs> that helped thanks again everybody for tuning in we adore your trashy hearts until we see you on wednesday or on patreon sooner Keep your hands clean. Oh, keep those hearts trashy. Put away your leaf blowers. Nobody wants to hear them. Bye, everyone. Bye, friends. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly 
slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.